This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome back to Chase and Tails Outdoor Podcast, guys. My name is Walt, and I am joined by Chase, my co-host. Dude, we are sitting very close to deer season. Um... I, I feel like this is one of those episodes that's really going to get people, if you're not already feeling the, 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 the twang of pain, that where you're, you're close to deer season, but you're not quite there, I think this guy's going to send you over the edge. Yes, he is. I mean, as of right now, I'm sitting 16 days from deer yeah. season. Yeah. And everything, I mean, I kind of feel behind a little bit now because he kind of talks a little <laughs> bit of like late summer scouting, early season yeah. tactics. So, but yeah, it, it was a great conversation with him. And I think that he put everything out on the table. He wants people to be successful. And I think it'll kind of be reflected in this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I think he hit the nail on the head there. I, I, I'm glad that we were able to, to link up with Jake and, and talk to him about his tactics because the dude gets it done. He gets it done on public land and uh, he shoots really, really large deer. So, I'm going to let him tell his story because he does a far better job than I would I could ever do. Um, but we got a couple announcements here. Uh, we've got some new patrons that we need to say thanks to. So huge shout out to Charles Hedlund and Steve Whittem for joining uh, the podcast here recently. Appreciate you guys supporting the show. Um, I, it means the world every time one of you guys signs up and uh, we'll, we'll get hats out and stickers out to the people who need them. And um, I also can announce that the giveaway item for this uh, quarter is shipped. It is it is coming to the house. We've got three. Now, originally we told you guys we are going to do three 20-inch sticks. But be that as it may, we love you guys so much. We're doing three of the 24-inch sticks with eighters. You get, we're going all out for you guys. Um, this is a 400 and something dollar giveaway that we're doing just to say thanks to you guys. Huge shout out to Timber Ninja Outdoors for helping us with that. Um, we love you guys. They're good people. Listen to their episode. But if you if you like this podcast and you'd like to support what we're doing, we do four giveaways a year. And right now you can still get in on the Timber Ninja giveaway that we're about to do. 
Anything else you want to add before we, we, we kick it to the star of the show? No, nah, man. I mean, hunting seasons are upon us, so I just want yep. to wish everybody uh, good luck this season. Uh, before everything gets kicked off and I forget to mention that. So I'm, <laughs> I can't wait to see all the slammers that get killed from people that That's have uh, listened to our podcast. So if you've, if you have success this year, I think just tag us uh, in your post and uh, we'll, yeah. we'll be willing to uh, post them on our stuff. Absolutely. We'd be glad we, we would be over the moon to share people's success and, and, and broadcast it. That's what we're about chasing tails. So that, that's a great, great closer there, buddy. All right. Well, let's get on to the episode with uh, Mr. Jake. All right. Let's do it. All right, guys. We are on the phone with Jake Bush, the dude that just gets it done in one of the heaviest hit states in the Midwest. It's the state you always know about. There's there's a hundred articles probably written about this state every year for non-resident and resident hunters. We're talking about the state of Ohio. We're talking summer scouting. Jake, man, uh, I believe right now you are actively putting together gear for this upcoming season. Yes, sir. I am. I'm actually in the process of uh, putting the studs in my custom gear double sticks right now. That's awesome, man. So mobile rigs have been a big deal this year. I'm curious, what is your setup going into this year? So my setup this year, uh, I refined it a little bit from last year. Again, it's going to be a custom gear DS five for my stand. And I'll have the custom gear doubles and the minis. Um, as of right now, my plan is to go with the doubles because I, I'm pretty confident with them at this point. And uh, I'll actually be sitting in a saddle in that DS5 so I can turn around and kind of saddle hunt with it as well. Wow. Just to try to cover all aspects. <laughs> that is the nice. first time I've heard of that, dude. That's nuts. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it actually helps quite a bit, especially... Um, you know, like early season, they could, there's a couple of different places that I have a couple of different bedding locations. They can come off these ridges and being able to turn around the tree like that just does wonders. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it makes sense. I, I, I mean, it, 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 that's, uh, that's smart, man. That's the benefit of both worlds there. You, so your, your saddle is basically your safety harness. And then you've got the, the benefit of, of, of having the platform and and the tree stand there. That's cool, dude. You are there's a thousand people right now that are either on one side or the other of that argument. And you just totally threw them for a loop. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Right down the middle. Yeah. I've got my, I've got my phantom saddle. And uh, like I said, it, it really does wonders. I mean, just setting up with it and that, you know, the DS five platforms a, a lot smaller anyways. And it just, it makes so much sense to be able to stand up and turn around a little bit for me. Yeah. 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 I could see that. It, so do you tinker with your gear heavily every year, or are you kind of one of those guys that waits for something landmark to happen before you start changing with stuff? I'm, I'm always refining it, to be honest. You know, um, throughout the seasons, I've noticed, like, I'll have a little squeak from something, or I'll put a stick up and it'll make noise where I didn't want it to make noise. Or There's just always little things to refine. I mess around with my, uh, my attachment methods for my sticks quite a bit, just trying to refine that as much as possible. This year, I've switched again just because – with the doubles, my plan is to have them attached to my saddle on the way up, and the uh, the sizz hauler will actually hold my my straps for me. And as I climb, I can take one out and then attach the stick and climb up. And I'm just trying to refine that process as much as possible. And I feel like every year it gets a little better. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just a constant evolution is the big part. That's awesome, man. I've I've never heard of such a blend. This is this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, whatever oh, gets it done, man. Hey, yeah. I mean, I can't argue with you. I mean, listen, anytime you're talking to a dude that shoots bucks as big as you are, I've, I'm in no position whatsoever to to even begin to try and judge what you're doing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, that you know that comes with moving to Ohio too. That's a big part of that. Oh so. no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, you 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 hail from the the Northeast, right? Yeah. Yep. I'm from New York originally, and uh, last year I don't know if you quite heard the whole story or not, but on a whim, I. I sold my home and quit my job and I moved down here to, to chase big bucks. So I found a job on 12 hour shifts. So I have more days off and I rent a 600 square foot apartment. I actually just bought a house, but until I get in the house, I'm still in my little apartment and I just go out and chase big bucks all the time, man. <laughs> uh, that's, that's Chase's lifestyle, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a little wild, but. Uh, so is the the solo mean that are are you a single man as well? Yeah, yeah, that uh single okay. and so I just have all the time <laughs> in the world to do this right now so I'm just taking advantage of it. <laughs> so the Instagram name's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> That's cool. That's awesome. Man. I didn't know you had a you had a you had a little uh, advertisement there for the ladies in your Instagram bio. <laughs> there oh yeah, there we go. I didn't even think about that either, but <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Oh man, well, maybe 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 one of the ladies listening to this in Ohio can uh, be your uh, your mobile hunting partner. Well, that that that'd be hey. a heck of a story, wouldn't it? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> we'll work on that. Oh man. Well, Jake, today's topic is going to be predominantly that how you approach the the le- the last part of summer and the earliest part of fall. And I think this is an area that at least the early part of the fall is becoming a little more popular as a, as a way to go after big deer. I think there's a lot of information, um, put out there. And I think a lot of times it's from people that maybe have kind of started to have that success, but they haven't really, you Mm -hmm. know, hit it big yet. And you're one of those guys that uh, I've heard your goals for this upcoming year. Uh, (laughs) I think you're targeting Boone and Crockett bucks on public land this year. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you're talking about a dude that gets it done, but is also swinging for the fences every time. And I couldn't think of a better person to, to start to pick your brain a little bit, man, and, and maybe help some people because we get a lot of questions about this time of year. So, uh, for the listener, what are you doing late summer from a scouting standpoint? So late summer, I mean, it kind of rolls throughout the full year for me. So just to back it up for a quick second, um, I'm, I'm really, you know, leading into the year. So in the springtime, I'm finding a lot of beds. I'm going out and I'm, I'm not necessarily looking for too much sign, but I am looking for specific buck beds based on, uh, what the factors that are going to, you know, make them bed there. So for Hill country, it's going to be like leeward points on ridges and preferably in the upper third, but I found them lower as well. And I'm just marking down all these beds. I'm finding, you know, food sources that are nearby, whether it's uh, private ag fields, public ag or oak trees, uh, apple trees. I found a little bit of everything. And I'm just really that time of year, I'm dialing it in. So when I when I start going into summertime, I basically got all the bedding locations down already. So I know where the deer are going to bed for that specific wind on that day for the majority of these areas. And at this point, all I have to do is locate a deer that I want to kill. If I can locate that deer, there's a very good possibility that he's in the beds that I've already found. And that's, that's what I base my early season off. And that's, I believe why I have so much success is I already have a lot of these areas scoped out up to that point. So 
leading into the summertime, I'm doing a lot of glassing, driving around to a lot of these locations. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these drives are like, you know, an hour, two hours, two and a half hours, but I just have the time to be able to do that. I, uh, I spend a lot of time doing that. I spend a lot of time running cameras. I ran 21 cameras this year on public. And as of right now, I've checked all of them, but two. Um, so I have a, a couple different ways to try to take inventory of these deer. You know, if I hear a rumor as well from somebody else about seeing a big one, I'll investigate it. And I'm just, I'm constantly trying to just locate the most amount of big deer I can. So I can be overly aggressive going into season. And I think that's a big part of it. You know, if I only have, say that I have one deer located that I want to kill, I don't have, I don't feel like I could probably be quite as aggressive on that because I don't have a backup plan, but I have so many backup plans that I swing for the fences every single time I go out. So, so yeah, go, leading into summer for me, it's more of an inventory standpoint. Um, when I'm checking cameras, I am checking for early rubs last year. So the story on this 186 inch deer last year, I went in to put a camera up. It was the second week of September just about the second week of September. And when I was walking those ridges to hang a camera, I found a a huge rub. I posted it on Instagram. I mean, it was fresh like that day or the day before. That's what led me to that deer. That led me to a scrape, to his bed and everything. And I had a plan in mind to kill him two weeks later. And we can get more into that later. But so everything I do, I'm, I'm constantly asking, you know, I see a big buck somewhere. Why did I see him there? Is what bed is he in? You know, what was the wind doing that day? All my, uh, all my trail camera photos that I'm taking right now, I put on my laptop and I actually get on Wonderground. And for every picture that I have of a buck that's over 150 inches, I'll get the specific wind and weather conditions for that day and I'll log it and I'll start putting these pieces together. So say that I have a buck that comes down to a private bean field, you know, I'm, I'm intercepting him on the public and he comes down at six o'clock in the afternoon right now. And I have bedding locations set up for a southwest wind there. And I get him on that camera that day, and it was a southwest wind. I know what bed he was in. I have at least a specific area. You know, sometimes that can be eight to 10 beds within a 100-yard area. But I know that I know within 100 yards where that deer's at. I think that that's a big piece of early season success is being able to locate that because then you can really push the boundaries on these deer, and you can be a lot more aggressive. How much of that, or I was going to say, how much like boots on the ground are you doing uh, in the summertime leading up to the hunt to find these beds that you're talking about? Or do you just already know these beds? So that's situational. This year is a little bit different for me because I have a lot of intel from last year and from the spring. Last year, I moved here in June. So I had June, July, and August, and I probably put on I would say 250 to 300 miles of actual hiking, searching for beds all summer. Yeah, I was every day I had off after work. I mean, every opportunity I had, I was out there locating beds. And to be honest, I mean, it's kind of nice to locate the beds in the summertime more if you have the option, just because you can see what's fresh time and you can really get a gauge on where the deer are at. Like, this year, a lot of my really big wood stuff isn't nearly as good as it was last year because we don't have as many acorns. And so it's it's also fine-tuning food sources as well. You know, some of the cornfields I targeted last year that were private that I was intercepting these deer from the public um, are, are beans this year, are hay fields. And so it's constantly evolving. The whole process is evolving. 
So I'm curious, you said you sometimes prefer to find summer beds or beds in the summer. Do you feel like they use the same beds year round? Because it seems like the information I've seen in the past is that you need to find those beds in January, February, because those are the beds that they're going to be using the next fall. I feel like they do. It, it depends. Once again, it's situational on food sources, because if you don't have, like, say you have a really bad acorn year and you don't have any public or public or private ag fields nearby, those deer might migrate quite a bit. Gotcha. But from the majority of my experience, the beds that I find are so hammered because I'm, I'm basically targeting the, the predominant wind. You, like, so say that we normally in Ohio get a Southwest wind for the most part, most of the bedding locations I'm looking for are on a Southwest wind. And regardless of what time of year I find them, they're hammered. I mean, they're beat down into the ground. The leaves are crumbled up. There's a thousand pieces of, of stomach hair in there. They're, they're very obvious to me. So I think that it doesn't really matter what time of year you find them necessarily, but if you were targeting a new area, it might be easier to find them in the summertime. 200 plus miles between June and September. At what point did you start worrying or did you at all start to worry about your human presence in the woods? I, I don't, I don't worry about that whatsoever, to be honest with you. Um, all, at least in Ohio, all of the public down here is just littered with hiking trails and, uh, horse trails and everything like that. So there's constantly human presence in there and these deer get bumped around a lot more than everybody thinks they do. You know, if most of these hiking trails are on top of the ridges, right? Right. So the wind is constantly blowing down the points of these ridges and these deer are always getting wind bumped. And I've witnessed it multiple times myself where, you know, these, there'll be hikers up top and the deer don't bust out of there like crazy. They just, they get up and they just go over to the next ridge and bed down in another location. And you can kind of track that. And that's, it's, so they're constantly getting bumped. I mean, I don't worry about ground scent whatsoever. I play the wind. I, I don't worry about any scent control at all, because if you're hiking in a mile and a half, two miles early season, you're going to be so sweaty. You're, you don't stand a chance. <laughs> so I play the wind with milkweed and I try to put myself in the best situation possible. But I mean, I, I'm actually after a 170 inch deer this year, he's going to be probably right at that 170 as an 11 point. And, um, I've bumped him out of his bed four or five times, whether it was turkey hunting, I saw the exact same deer. I found multiple sheds of his on public. I, he's, he's locked down to this location. I can't, I can't bump him enough to get him out of there. And I've experienced that three or four times already down here where, you know, I might have a camera way back over a ridge and across that ridge, I keep bumping the same 140 inch deer out over and over and over. I would talk to Byron about that. I bumped the same deer out three days in a row off the exact same bed. Wow. Yeah. A, it makes sense to me. If you're bumping him out and he's getting away every time, then he probably feels like that's a good bed to be in. <laughs> yes. He feels, he feels safe with it. And like I said, they're so used to getting bumped. I mean, almost every public Ridge in Ohio has some sort of trail on top of it. So they're so used to that human presence. Hmm. So it sounds like you hunt a lot of big woods then. If you're, if, from, from just what you're saying, is that true? Yeah, I prefer the big woods. It's, uh, it, to me, it gets less pressure. There, there is a lot of public ag lands around here. Um, and that seems to get a lot more pressure. And I, I just, I've noticed the quality of deer isn't quite the same as it is in the big woods. If you get down in Southern Ohio in the Hills, I mean, I've got cameras this year that have five bucks over 150 on one camera in daylight, five totally different deer. 
Hmm. And they're coming to a community scrape at three o'clock in the afternoon in June. I mean, they're <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> the big woods seem to hold bigger deer, and that's why I gravitate towards those areas. Interesting. That it does make sense, though. It, it, I bet you that there's not a whole lot of non-resident hunters that are like, you know what I'm going to do when I get out of the deep south? I'm going to go get into those big woods again. You know, like because <laughs> that's that's what exactly. we have here. Is I, I feel like in listening to you, I kind of relate to a lot of what you say. And a lot of the guy, these big wood hunters that I've heard here lately, it seems like there's, you know, we don't necessarily have quote unquote big woods here, but we don't have ag. And it seems like the patterns are, are kind of similar uh, along those lines because there's no big, you I mean, you're, it makes sense what you said about the lack of agriculture. If there's not a, a, a huge draw, uh, short term food source that's only available for a short period of time, their patterns and their ranges are probably pretty similar year round. Exactly. And, and to kind of just run off what you were saying there, I mean, you got to think, so East of Ohio, most of those States in the Northeast or the East or even the South are just are wooded and they're Hills. Right. I mean, that's kind of that. So people that come to Ohio or come to the Midwest to hunt, especially non-residents kind of have that, that Midwestern dream in their mind. They want to come out, they want to hunt ag lands. They want to hunt these big, you know, funnels alongside ag fields that are, that are public for the rut and stuff like that. So those are what really get targeted. I mean, I don't see, I, I, there's absolutely zero pressure bow hunting in Southern Ohio. If you ask me on public, I don't, I don't physically see anybody. What does your truck look like? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm all for it, man. I love, I love guys coming up here and and killing big deer. Yeah, no, that's, that's not what you hear though. You never hear someone say, I don't, I, I seldom see people in public in Ohio or <laughs> most places you don't hear that, but I, I'm curious if there's not a huge shift in how their patterns change, how long is the information and the Intel that you get in the summer? How long is that actionable data for you? So there's a lot of look that, that once again, that's, there's a lot of variables to that. I do have locations where I have deer that like that, that big 11 point I'm after this year, he will not leave that ridge system. He, he's there all year. You know, he, he summers there, he winters there, he drops his sheds there. He's always there because there's food sources nearby. And if you're in extremely big timber, I think that that's going to change a lot more, but if you have a consistent food source, whether it's a really good Oak flat every year or some sort of ag, they're going to be a lot more consistent and you can use those to your advantage. And that's what I, you know, I've took all those miles that I've walked and scouted and all these, I mean, I've scouted hundreds of thousands of acres of public land and I've narrowed that down to 20 camera locations. And from those 20 camera locations, I narrow that down to my first, let's say five or six sits of the season that are just to me, home runs, high percentage sits on giant deer. So it's, it's all just a matter of filtering all that down and you're trying to put yourself in the best situation with those those spots that are more consistent. I have spots that aren't consistent that I really won't target as much because I can't keep that consistency there. If that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you, yeah. you mentioned cameras there. Let's touch on that for a second. You, you run 20 cameras. It sounds like, um, yeah. What, how do you utilize cameras? Because there's guys that go in and check it every couple of hunts. There's guys that leave it for long soaks. What does your trail camera strategy look like? So my camera strategy is I'll put my cameras out in June and normally I'll pull them in September, like two weeks before season, I'll pull them and I'll have all that Intel. 
this year I leave for Montana next Friday for an elk trip for two weeks. So I had to pull them early. So this year I'm losing like 20 days, basically three weeks of Intel that I wish I had, but I can't physically pull all those cameras in three or four days before season. It's just, it's, it's too much workload. There's too much driving. And I mean, that's hundreds of miles of driving to get to all these different cameras. So for me, all it is is an inventory purpose. And then I let them sit when I pull those cards for the rest of the hunting season and I'll pull them and I'll have that historical data for the next year. So say that my brother wants to come down during the rut next year and his goal is 140 inch deer. Well, November 19th last year, I had five different cameras that had 140 inch deer on daylight for like two or three days consistently. So I have that data already that I could go throw them in, you know, that saddle right there or throw him on this bedding ridge that has a big logging cut on it, and he's got a really good chance of killing a deer. Do you feel like your best chance of killing a really big deer is going to be early season? I do, yeah. I feel like for me, I've got my first five sits are home runs, and my first five sits are going to be on right at that Boone and Crockett class. You know, even even 160s, let's say that mid, mid to high 160 deer, my first five sits are going to be on – deer that are that size that I have really consistently either observed or have them on camera or I knew I know that that food source is such a draw right now and nobody's back there that they're going to pull off their bed and come right down that ridge the right way so yeah I would say that my first five days are hands down I mean the the best chance that I have it's not even close and that and you're using wind basically as you're are you using that as your determining factor on which spot you're going to hunt Wind is my biggest factor, but I do have some other factors as well. Last year, when I went in to kill my buck, I had a lot of locations that had good deer for a southwest wind. And the reason I went to that spot specifically was it was one of the last areas in the mountains that had water because we had a dry summer. So there was a creek, and that creek still had water in it. And I knew that from hanging that camera two weeks prior. So I knew that at some, you know, it was 94 degrees out at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when I killed him. And I believe that he was coming down to get water. He came down to the oak tree, and then I believe he was headed to the creek before I shot him. So there's there's a lot of factors that go into that. There's a lot of ridges that I have that are really steep, and the north side will be shaded all day as well. So now you have a shaded slope that's leeward. You have a lot of different factors for these deer to bed there, and just finding those locations really helps out. How do you keep track of all this? So I have notebooks. Um, on Onyx, I actually... I log Onyx a lot different than probably most people do. Uh, I use the colored pins and everything like everybody, but a lot of these locations I'll take, you can upload photos to a specific pin on Onyx. And so I'll upload, you know, first off trail cameras. I'll actually take a picture of the tree. I'll upload pictures of beds. I'll upload pictures of trees that I could potentially sit in. I'm just constantly logging all this data all the time. Okay, yeah, because that's what I was wondering. I'm like, if you found all these beds and everything else, I'm like, how on earth is he remembering all this with it being spread out hundreds of miles? I'm like, there's got to be some way he's logging all this information. There is. And I actually, another thing that I do as well, one of my biggest source of inventory, hands down, is cameras. And with cameras, what I'll do is I'll log the specific deer that I have on that camera for the wind of that day. So I can pull into my phone and say, okay, so say I have, it's say it's, opening day here and I have a Southwest wind, I'll actually open up my Southwest wind folder and I'll have four or five bucks in there that were betting on this ridge and a Southwest wind. So right there, now I know I have five deer I can target on that wind. And that helps a lot because otherwise you can get that confused quite a bit. 
Yeah, I'd say so. How are you setting these cameras up? Like, where are you putting these cameras to get pictures? Yeah, so I, I basically set the cameras for the most part. Like, I have a lot of areas that are big clear-cut areas as well, right? And so with the clear-cut areas, I can find community scrapes more often. Um, if I can the, – the majority of the spots that I'm putting cameras in have multiple different bedding ridges in close proximity. And so community scrapes are a big thing. If you can find those, a lot of times those deer will pull off those and hit those scrapes. Or I mean, they'll hit them at like 5 or 6 in the afternoon in the summertime. So you have really good pictures. I also put them on the trails – a lot of the trail, so in, in in the big woods, what I've noticed is these bedding locations, the deer will leave those locations and head one direction. There's normally one trail they're heading out onto a food source. If you can find that trail, a lot of times it will have rubs on it. If, if you can find that trail and put a camera on it, you're going to have a lot of intel. And normally I'll put that camera at least one ridge over. So if I have the main ridge and there's a bunch of points that jut out and I know that this buck's bedded on this point, I'll try to have that camera on the next ridge out of sight of him, if that makes sense. So when he comes around that second point, my camera will be there. And that's also where I set up my tree stand because I could be within 75 to 85 yards of that deer. And he never even knows I'm there. If your, if your idea is that these deer have about the same range year round and you're hanging these cameras for long soaks, when you sit that camera out until midsummer, you know, if you're not getting bucks, are you pulling that camera? How how long are you willing to commit to that area uh, to you know to provide some variance in in, in their ranges? You've, you to probably... be honest with you, I'm I'm I've I feel like I'm at the point with my scouting where I really don't put cameras where I don't where I I'm not positive there's a buck bedded there, and that's based off. Normally, if you find these bedding locations that are wind based like that with big beds or you find some rubs there's going to be a buck there it's just a matter of the size and normally i'll validate that with with like a footprint if i can find a track that's you know a four finger track and that spot's getting a camera because i know that there's a mature deer in there it's just a matter of how many how many inches he's got on his head at that point and i i, I mean i would say that this year every so i've pulled 18 cameras at this point and every camera that i pulled has at least 140 inch deer on it but i don't even log those i've got at this point out of the 18 cameras i've managed to find 13 bucks over 150 it might be 14 it's right on the right on the verge of being 14 so i, I feel like the the scouting's there the scouting pays off and my cameras really don't go dry very often to be honest with you interesting chase i wonder if i wonder if that could be uh scaled for florida yeah, I don't know because I really can't figure out where the bucks bed here on yeah. a consistent <laughs> basis. Um, is that more is is that more like flatland or what kind of what kind of terrain are you at down there? Yeah, it's flat, just flat. Like if I told you, hey, walk that ridge, it might be a foot high. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, I got you. And that I I struggle with that too, to be honest with you. That's that's why one of my big targets is big woods because it just makes so much sense to me. It, it'll be interesting because I, I, I hear these guys, you're not the first person to say this, that especially um, from a scientific standpoint, you know, the, that a big buck's range is relatively small. You know, obviously there's some variance to that based on food proximity and, you know, the abundance of it. You know, I'm not saying that everybody fits within a certain neat criteria, but when I think about Florida 
I have some topography up here. I've got some areas where there are genuine, you know, 15 to 20 foot elevation changes, which I know someone's listening and laughing right now when I say that. But for Florida, that that's huge. Like, that's just unheard of. And I, I, I get these glimpses or you hear about these big bucks that are seen. And it's and it's one of those things where you can scatter cameras on on trails here that look like they're just beat the hell down. And Chase, you and I have talked about this on and on, where these trails just look like you could just sit there, and if you dedicated 15 minutes, there just has to be a deer that comes down that trail. But there's so many different connecting routes, and the land is so homogenous. I mean, it's just almost equal cover all the way across. There doesn't seem to be any kind of pattern. But I just I want to be the guy that figures out how to do it because it seems like in everywhere else people are able to to, to find some pattern. I just it just doesn't seem like um, Chase and I are able to connect the dots sometimes. I, I feel like I mean if you can if you can physically put enough miles on the ground where you're locating the specific beds and and set your cameras up based on those beds and if you can find those beds and then find some sort of food source like what what would you think the first food source would be leave, leaving that bed and then just cut that off with a camera that might put you a lot more in the game i know that even here there's some trails that are beat down that you get in certain areas and i mean there's just trails coming from everywhere and it's just at that point it's a guessing game you might you might be at five percent success rate on getting a buck on camera or something like that Right. See, the uh, the problem is, at least for me, is just finding buck beds because I feel like they can bed anywhere because of the amount of cover uh, that's down here. And there's really, like Walter kind of mentioned, there's like no necessarily defined food source. I mean, it stays green down here all season long. So there's plenty of browse for them. Uh, if you've got a bumper acorn crop, then they can pretty much choose any tree they want to go to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, or it either seems like we have no acorns or we have like a bumper crop of acorns that year. So it's, it's kind of, it, that's what kind of makes it difficult for me is what you're saying is I'm trying to like, okay, how, how can I apply this down here? And I'm sure there's some way I can apply it down here. It's just maybe more of, I've just got to go bust through a bunch of areas um, that are just thick and find uh, these beds that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I that that's probably how I would attack it to be honest. Well, and it, it also sounds like you know, and Chase, your situation is a little bit different than Jake's because you hunt you know a fair amount of private land, and that's where your big deer are. You don't necessarily want to push them off that private land, um, but you do hunt your fair share of public. And it sounds like you know, Chase, maybe you and I, our mark for success is uh, when we're doing our scouting. Maybe if we're not bumping those big deer out of their beds you know maybe that's the indicator you know if we if we if we we put on our hip our hip uh waders and we we bust through the brush and we start bumping up big deer maybe stopping and being like okay well what kind of terrain or not terrain but what kind of brush is this and see if there isn't some kind of pattern amongst that um that maybe that's the missing link i don't know yeah or we just need to get the uh Florida to start planting a bunch of uh, agriculture <laughs> yeah, so we can get them to go <laughs> one uh, way or the other. That's it. Okay, so how often do you identify during your summer hunting the buck that you're going to kill? 
or that you end up killing? Like how often, you know, you talked about how you, you, you try and find as many deer as you can of a certain caliber, but how often is the buck that you're going after one that you've laid eyes on more than once? So the majority of the time, I even, I, I believe I laid eyes on this deer last year. I bumped, when I found that rub, I looked up and I bumped a giant deer. It, I, I can't verify for sure it was this deer, but there's a very good possibility it was. But the majority of the time I do have inventory on that specific deer, whether it's a sighting or camera. This year I I've, I've have more camera intel, so I feel like I'll have a much better chance of, of actually having the deer that I'm going to kill on camera already. But yeah, normally I have some sort of observation of that specific deer. And I always have an observation of a deer that I want to kill in that area when I've actually killed, obviously, or I wouldn't be there. Yeah. I, w- I was curious. I remember you mentioning uh, on another podcast, you know, the, your ability to, to target these deer. But sometimes it sounds like these, you know, hunters will find an area that holds big bucks. And, you know, it's, it's another buck that tips you off to this is a good area and, and you end up killing one you don't see, but it sounds like you, 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 you pretty well know you, do you name them? Are you a, a no, deer namer? No, no, I don't, I don't <laughs> name them. And I didn't. So, so when I checked my camera going into hunt last year, I didn't have that buck that I killed on camera, but I did have 150 some inch 10 point on camera. And first year in Ohio, I was thrilled. I was like, Oh, I'm going to kill this deer. Like I've got him. I've got them locked down and then this thing came off the ridge instead. And I was just, <laughs> you can imagine. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's the kind of buck that literally every American, uh, hunter thinks about. I mean, it's just, it's stunning dude. Um, and we're going to get to that story. I'm going to make sure we keep time for that. So moving along, let's, let's move. It's no longer summer scouting. It's now the first week of deer season. You've done all this cataloging. You've done all your, your wonderground analysis, what are you doing those first seven days that you aren't doing the rest of the year? So I'm my, my, my hunting strategy is a little bit different too. I really don't target mornings a whole lot just because I, I make a lot of noise and I, I don't like going in with a headlamp. I, I like to know the specific tree I'm going to be in. My, my view on it is that if the deer goes back to his bed and he beds down at that point, it's, it's all in my hands. You know, he's already laying down. As long as I can beat his ears and beat his nose and his eyes, I can kill that deer. I know in my head, you know, sometimes I'm wrong, but in my head, I know exactly where that deer's bedded, like the specific bed. And I know that I'm going to scout my way in and find the best sign within a hundred yards of that bed and set up on it and, and kill him. That's, that's in my head what I'm thinking every time I go in. If I go in early in the morning at 2 a.m. and set up, now it's in his hands. If he J hooks, he might bust me. But if I set up for a J hook and he goes the other way and doesn't J hook, I won't have a shot opportunity. And now I've, now I've left the fact that I was there. Like when he gets out of his bed, now he knows I was there. There's just a lot of factors that I like having everything in my hands. So I would say that, you know, if, as I get into the rut, I start morning hunting more because you're, you're hunting travel routes at that point more, not specific beds. So the first, pretty much all of October, not necessarily the first seven days, pretty much all of October. That's what I'm doing is, is hunting nights, targeting beds, trying to get as close as possible. And honestly, I mean, that time of year, I'm every time I go in, I'm swinging for the fences. I'm first off, it's fun to me that, you know, like the thrill of either you're going to kill that deer or see him, or you're going to bust him off the ridge. If he's in that bed, which I, in my head, he always is in that bed, even though, like I said, I'm wrong sometimes. If I go in there and I do everything right, I can kill him. 
But if I go in there and I mess up, he's going to bust off that ridge. And that thrill to me is, is so much fun. But on the other side of that, you learn so much too. If you go in and you do everything right and he comes down and you shoot him at 25 yards at three in the afternoon, you're done. You, you just accomplish that. But if you fail, you have all those lessons that you learned. Why did you fail? Did your thermals spin on you? Did, you know, did the wind change and you didn't look at the forecast the right way? Did, was the North slope so shaded that your thermals didn't rise and you set up a little bit too high and that wind blew across his bed. There's so many factors. And I think that that's, that's a big part of it. How close are you getting to these beds? So normally I try to get, you know, it's, it's big woods, so it's a little bit different, but most of the big woods that I'm hunting are thicker and that's why there's beds there as well. Whether it's briars or just a lot of stem count, whatever it is, you know, old clear cuts that are nearby to some sort of food source. I, I would say on average, I'm probably getting, let's say 75 yards from a bed. I've been 200 yards from the beds knowingly, and I've also been 40 yards from beds in different locations. It just, it really depends. I try to get to the hottest sign that I can find that correlates that bed to a food source. You know, if that, if that sign's on the other side, it might be made at night, but I'm trying to get to the sign that's in between him and the food source. And as close as I can, there's a lot of things that go into that. You know, you're, if you're in big country the whole time, you're throwing milkweed, trying to figure out what your thermals are doing. Like last year, I was probably, if I would have been 10 feet higher, I wouldn't, 10 feet up the ridge further in another tree, I wouldn't have killed this deer because I had a just off thermal pole. It was shaded enough where with milkweed, I could see, you know, I had a specific bed locked down and I could see that my milkweed was only probably 20 feet below where his bed was blowing down through there. So it, it, there's a lot of variables that go into that, but yeah, I would say on average, probably 75 yards. That, that's still a foreign, that, that just, that, that seems so incredibly close. I don't, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and, it, and it is and yeah so so my my setup is i'll go in at like you know that's another reason why i don't really hunt mornings i'll actually wake up because i work nights i'll wake up at like 11 a.m drive to where i want to be get there let's say i get there at 12 30 and last year i got to the spot that i wanted to hunt at like 11 30 i believe and it took me like three and a half hours to hike three quarters of a mile and set my stand up and i was only in the stand for maybe 30, 35 minutes before I kill them. But it, that's how long of a process that takes because every gust of wind you get, you'll take a couple steps and then you'll wait. You know, you know that if in your head, you know, that deer's right there, you act totally different than if you're not sure to, that's why mentality is such a big part of it. Because if I would have went in there and thought maybe there's a deer in this valley somewhere, I would have just trudged down through there and found some sign and set up and he would have never came down off that ridge. So yeah, that's uh, that's that's definitely a big part of it. What what's wow. your? Go ahead, Jace. No, I was gonna, I was just gonna say three hours getting to <laughs> your spot. That's uh, that's some that's some dedication right there. Yeah, it's fun though, man. I'm telling you, it's it's a blast. <laughs> <laughs> you may have to work on me a little bit on that on that sale, but uh, yeah, I you know what? Actually, I just looked at the photo again. I'm sold. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> I've 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 taken a long time sometimes to approach some areas. Um, I, have you ever thought, I mean, what's the turkey population in the areas you hunt? The turkey population isn't, 
I mean, it, there, there's turkeys there, but it's not like down south at all or even up yeah. in the decent though i mean you could are you talking about like calling on the way in yeah dude have you ever experimented with that i have a little bit and i've actually spooked a lot of a lot of deer and that's that's one thing maybe it's because i sound like a dying pig but <laughs> i mean that's <laughs> but yeah i mean i've i've got away with it on some does before i've spooked some i spooked some bucks um last year i believe it was zach Farinbaugh was talking about how they were hunting ohio and they came up over top of a, they ended up targeting like big bowl systems and during muzzleloader, they were pushing those and they came up over top of one of the bowls and they turkey called. And he said that like 15 deer blew out of there. Like you couldn't imagine. And I just, I'd rather not tip them off to anything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that. I, I wonder, I'm, I'm glad you said that because maybe this will, this will change how I go about it. You know, I, hens and, and whatnot they don't do a whole lot of like calling in the in the in the fall per se but i've always thought like you know i got big into turkey hunting this spring and i had a gobbler coming to me in the woods and i was like is that a gobbler or another hunter you know like for a moment there it just sounded like like a dude picking his feet up and dropping them and picking his feet up and dropping them um and and i saw a deer one time years back she kept watching some brush she kept watching some brush and i didn't know what it was and then i heard just like a, a soft little you know puck puck purr puck puck purr and the moment that noise happened she dropped her ears and went back to eating it and, and completely like left everything alone and i remember i remember that and i can't believe i never made the connection but i was younger and i thought oh wow that's cool she knew that was a turkey you know um so I'm I'm gonna try it this year, and I'll let you know how it works in the South. Maybe because we've got more turkeys, it's less it's less frightening. Yeah, and I'm 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 sure like sometimes it would work. I just I, I would have a quiet. lot of yeah. yeah I just prefer to be quiet. <laughs> yeah, because I feel like they can pick up uh, like we've talked about before, like the exact location. Yeah, that's exactly. true. Exactly. That's true. Yeah, that's that's a big part of it for me. Yeah. So if you make some other weird noises, they're like, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's not a turkey. <laughs> Do you have a, a preference on a kind of tree you like to set up in? For the most part, no. I mean, I try to go in really open-minded. You know, I obviously, yes, I would like to be in like a basketball-sized tree that has a crotch 15 feet up that I can get just above <laughs> yeah. in the perfect world, right? Right, right. But I've actually gotten situations where I've found that tree, and then I found another tree that's 10 yards you know, further down the ridge, and that's the tree I need to be in, and I sit in the wrong tree because of that. So... I'm trying to get out of that mentality. I try to go in with a complete clean slate every time. From the moment I start walking, I'm looking for sign, and I'm trying to correlate that to the beds, and I try to get in the – normally, for me, it's like – I mean, last year, same exact thing, and this happened to me multiple times. The specific tree that I get in is probably the only tree that I could have killed that deer out of. I just – whether it's total luck or what, I've – got into the right tree if i would have been in the other one i would have been you know 10 yards either got blown out or i wouldn't have had the shot that i had when he turned broadside it just it seems to work out like that for some reason and i've I've picked the wrong one a lot but yeah how do you how do you go about judging that when you're walking in i've done a lot of i've tried to incorporate like i'm gonna scout my way in until i find the fresh sign and then i'm gonna hunt um and a lot of times i end up passing the freshest sign in search of the freshest sign <laughs> per se, you know, where you're going to a large extent. How do you, do you, do you kind of like eyeball trees when you're in there scouting to begin with? And then you're coming back and just kind of verifying that. Mm, I, I, I do a little bit, but I try to get away from that. So the, 
all like I said earlier, all the scouting I do, I narrow all my spots down to put me in the best advantage possible with the biggest deer. So I have spots that do have giant deer as well, but they're going to be harder to hunt. And I don't target those as much for a specific reason. So most of mine, I try to put the food source that I want to go after downwind of the predominant wind for that bedding location. If I can find areas that, you know, I would be coming in and accessing from, from either the food source or I would be able to circle around to that food source and start working my way from the food source back to the bed. So every step that I take away from that food source is a step closer to the bed. So all that sign is going to be a little bit earlier in the day. Mm-hmm. But that makes sense. And I just keep going and keep going and keep going until I feel that I'm at a point where that deer would feel comfortable enough based on cover and based on everything else to get down and make it to that sign during the daytime. Oh yeah. And then at that point, the tree would be the the best tree for that specific location, which sometimes is a tree that's, you know, four inches in diameter. Sometimes it's this giant tree where I have to use all eight feet of my straps. Interesting. So are you using, go ahead. I was wondering, are you using (laughs) Onyx the whole time? Like, are you going, okay, these are where these beds are. I'm now within a hundred yards. I'm yeah, yeah, within con- 50 yards. <laughs> yeah, I'm constantly on Onyx, and I'm actually, while I'm walking in a lot of the times, I'm taking measurements as well. I'll, I'll use that, the tool for the measurement tool. Clever. And I'll I'll keep saying, like, hey, because I have a, a distance in mind. If I can't get within 200 yards, it's pretty much pointless to me because I don't know if a 170-inch deer is going to want to get up, and, you know, a four- or five-year-old deer is going to want to get up and move 200 yards in daylight. Right. So, yeah, Onyx is a huge tool for me. Good deal. Well, I, I've exhausted all my questions. Chase, how about you? Uh, well, are were you applying these tactics somewhere else before you started applying them in Ohio? Yeah, yep. I hunted New York for pretty much my whole life. Um, I got into some of these tactics quite early. I've just kind of refined them in my own style, and I've had – Really good luck up there. The problem in New York, like a lot of areas, is the deer just aren't as big. I mean, I've, you know, I've killed multiple three, four, five-year-old deer, but they're just, the racks don't justify them at all. So it's a little different. Moving down here was definitely a, a big change for me with that aspect. Sure. Do you, do you feel like hunting New York helped you when you went to Ohio? I, yeah, I definitely do. And I think that's why I don't feel like there's a lot of pressure here. I think is because New York is just hammered with pressure. The public land up there, even in New York, basically everybody owns 20 acres, you know, 10, 20 acres, something like that. So you only have these little chunks to hunt and they're just, the deer don't do very many natural things and they don't really live to be the, you know, three, four, five, six year old deer that you can see in the Midwest States. So yeah, definitely, definitely helped me quite a bit and I've, I've got a lot better at avoiding pressure and, and recognizing little signs of pressure. And I think that that's a big part of it. Now you these bucks, obviously you see them. Did you see the buck that you killed get up out of his bed? Or yeah. He... So, yeah. So I, I heard a stick crack cause I was taking B roll. I was messing around with my camera and manual. <laughs> like I shouldn't have been, of course, <laughs> being, being dumb, but so I'm messing around with my camera and I hear a stick crack and I look up and he, I watched him stand up and he started working, which would have been to my east, which was bad because my my thermals weren't rising. They were actually running almost straight down the ridge because that ridge was shaded and I had like a 15 mile an hour wind. And so he actually went like, I mean, when he stopped on the trail, he actually came right to me on the trail that I walked in on. He walked <laughs> right down my boot tracks for 75 yards. 
<clears throat> right to an oak tree that was 33 yards and he started eating the acorns that I verified were the, you know, it was a white oak that had a scrape under it and a bunch of fresh rubs. And so within 75 yards of his bed, I found that I was like, this is where I got to be. I have to be able to shoot this spot. And he came down and turned broadside. I mean, you couldn't have rode it up any better. And how early did he get up before dark? It was, so it was October 2nd, I believe. Yeah, I think it was the 2nd or the 3rd, one or the other. I believe it was the 2nd. And he was out of his bed at like 3.20 in the afternoon. And he was, you know, it was 94 degrees out, 93, 94 degrees that day. I believe that he was getting up to eat some acorns and get some water. The water was within 110 yards of his bed. And I believe he was going to head back up and bed back down. And I just happened to be at that spot where he wanted to eat some white oaks on his way. And I just cut him off. So he was, so you don't think he was headed to the main food source. You just think, Oh, I'm going to get up, stretch my legs, grab something to eat real quick, grab some water, get some water, and then just go right back to his bed. Yep. And that's exactly why I targeted that spot that day being so hot. It was one of the last creeks that still had water in it in the mountains. So would you say that part of your tactics is trying to identify a food source that they'll hit? You, you mentioned the, the closest food source. But it kind of sounds like you're saying that there may be a, um, I don't want to say a less preferred, but like if, if there is a grove of oak trees with a bunch of sign underneath and just acorns going everywhere, but there's a smaller oak tree next to your bedding, do you think that it's habit for mature deer as a general generalization to hit that smaller tree closer to their bed to prevent them having to get up and expose themselves? Yes, 100%. Okay. That's perfect. And so I always have a major destination in mind, whether, like I said, it's egg or a, just a, a big oak flat. But I feel like there's always some sort of food source or water source that they want to hit before they get there. And if you can cut them off at that point, that's that's huge. Hmm. That's fine. I haven't heard that before, but that, it kind of makes sense, right? Like if their whole goal is to stay as isolated as possible, they are going to get hungry. Chase, this is something we've talked about before when it comes to, to acorns. You know, if, if, it's, if they can find bedding next to a, a tree that's dropping acorns, they're never going anywhere, right? They don't have to expose themselves, really. Um, I wonder, I wonder, that it just seems, never heard that said before, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, like think- there might be like a pre-staging food source, per se. 100 yeah 100 i believe that there is I've, I've seen that a lot with these big deer they always they they seem to have everything figured out and most guys the way they hunt they're hunting they're too scared to get that close because they don't want to spook the deer right so they would never even be in the game of that first food source if that buck goes down and, and feeds there he might feed there he might feel comfortable enough to feed at that food source until dark and then move out to the destination if if you're either a sitting on the edge of the destination or you're b two or 300 yards from his bed, you're completely out of the game. You really have to push the limits. And I think that that's a lot of guys really understand the concept of the beds and everything like that. But there's a lot of guys are really scared of failure. And for me, I have absolutely, I mean, it's so fun for me. I have no fear of failure whatsoever with deer hunting because I have, I have backup plans and that's a big part of it. But even if I just feel like the, the closer you can get, the more you can push your limit of that, the, the better off you're going to be with every hunt. And I think you're going to see sightings go up and kills are going to go way up, especially once you fail a couple of times and realize what you're doing wrong. Now, do you feel like if you would have bumped that deer that you would have been able to come back and hunt him a few days later? Yes, I do. I think that in these locations, I, they get bumped around 
so much, like I was saying before, that they'll they'll come back to that spot. And I mean, there's a lot of guys that actually capitalize on like the bump and dump tactic because of that. They'll they'll bump these deers out, these deer out, and they'll set up, and you know, the next day or even that night, they'll come in and kill them. Right. Yeah, because I feel like you said there's a lot of guys that are under and girls that are under the conception of if you bump a buck out, it's gone forever or whatever. He's going to go bed somewhere else. I don't believe that. I, I don't, I, I've, I go in and scout all the time and do things um, where I, either I'm checking a camera or something, trying to get recent Intel or just looking for the freshest sign available. And I really don't think that you're going to like, just totally blow them out of an area especially if they've always been there. I mean, you're talking about a mature buck. I don't know. Uh, how old was this deer? Was he four and a half, five and a half, you think? Uh, we were estimating five and a half. I didn't actually get him aged, but I would say five and a half. Okay, so five and a half, at that point, he's probably got his, like you mentioned, his his routine dialed down. Yeah. And it's like older guys, like they've got their routine dialed down and they don't want to switch it. <laughs> Yeah, and it's worked for him for so long. He's like, okay, this is this has always worked. <laughs> yeah, a big part of that is just a, I see. If I had like thirty acres or fifty acres of of private land, I would approach it differently as well. Because like you guys were saying, you really don't want to bump those deer off your land too many times. But right. having just like vast public land where there's constantly people in there, and there's there's just constant human presence. You, I feel like you can just get away with bumping them. It's totally different. I mean, it, it make it, it does make sense. And I think I think if you're dealing with a, a forty thousand acre track, you might bump them thirty thir- off of that thirty acres, but you're not as confined. Um, you know, I I think I could see Chase. I can think of a couple WMAs off the top of my head that get a lot of pressure that people pull pretty decent deer off of on a pretty frequent basis. That what Jake's saying would would very easily apply. Um, a lot of a lot of Florida public land is like open to horses, and there's an access road to every block of timber. Getting away from quote unquote away from people is very difficult in a lot of areas here. Um, and I think I think I could see a world where what you're saying would really apply quickly. Um, let's let's tie this all together. I, you've got an incredible story, an incredible deer that you harvested last year. Um, I mean, this thing is is absolutely stunning we've talked about a lot of tactics and we've kind of touched on this story a little bit as well in this episode but why don't you uh, i'll give you the floor and and rudely interrupt periodically i'm sure but uh you know why don't you kind of tie all this together with how that that hunt unfolded yeah yep absolutely so i kind of went through the uh the movement down here and the summer scouting and everything i located Last year, I located a lot of good deer very quickly through cameras and some observations. Um, one of my big tactics last year, I really didn't mention a whole lot, was actually physically bumping these deer off their beds on purpose. And that was coming in from the tops of these ridges. I just wanted to cover that because that's that's a good tactic as well. But so I, I located that there was some good deer in this one thermal hub, basically. It was a location where the way that the ridges circled around, they could basically bed there on every wind but an east wind. And so there was, there was a lot of, a lot of really good buck sign there for that reason. It could always hold multiple deer. And, uh, when I found that spot, I just logged it like all my other spots that I had. And I had all those other factors in mind too. It was a really steep Ridge. There was water there. The food source was really good at the time. It was full of white Oaks in there. Um, and so going into season actually opening day, I didn't sit and, 
in a big hill country at all. I sat in ag land because I had a bead on another good deer. And I didn't end up seeing that deer that night. I pushed in. I could have very well pushed in too close. I was probably 50 yards from this bed. I never ended up seeing him. And I, uh, the next day I took off because I was so tired. It was like 90, it was almost a hundred degrees that first day. So the next day I took off cause I was just absolutely drained. I mean, I only took one bottle of water with me and I took the next day off to recoup. It was kind of a little bit stormy out and everything. And the following day I realized that I had to get out there again. Um, I had four more days of my first week of vacation to take. Cause I always take the first week off and I just remember waking up and I checked the wind and it was like a consistent 15 mile an hour wind. And at that point, something clicked in my head. I was like, wait a minute, with that wind blowing that, that hard, it's going to blow my thermals out of there before they have a chance to rise too much. And I can come in from the food source, like the direction, of the food source, I had to circle around a little bit, but I can work my way back and get close to where that bed is. And that was the, the, that bed was the last bed that I found that summer. So it was really fresh in my mind, which I think helped a lot. So I parked my Jeep, started working my way in and it was just, it was a very long process to get back in that hub. I actually saw two coyotes on the way in and I was really close to shooting one and I'm really glad I didn't now, but, um, <laughs> yep, exactly. And I, I kept working in and right away, I mean, within, it wasn't, five yards off the road, there was already buck sign. And there was a scrape right by where I parked my Jeep. I couldn't believe it. But the whole way in, I was on good deer sign. And the only thing that kept me going was the fact that I had pre-scouted that and I knew where the beds were at. Because at any point, I mean, there was good enough sign to really set up. If I wouldn't have had the pieces together where the actual bedding location was, I probably wouldn't have made it back as far as I did. So I kept kept working my way in and I had some white oaks in mind. I, uh, I checked the camera probably 150 yards from, from his specific bed. And that's when I had that 150 inch 10 point on camera, beautiful deer. And I was like, yeah, I'll gladly take him. I actually had him in daylight walking from the bed to that scrape. So I had the specific bed that he was in for, a, it was like three days prior. I had him coming down off that bed, right down the trail. So I got up on that trail and I decided I'm just going to continue to walk down the sign. And if I hit a really good scrape, I'm going to stop. But if I can make it to that white oak, I want to make it there. And it just so happened when I made it to that white oak, it was lit up with sign. There was a big scrape right there. There was a couple fresh rubs. I mean, the, the sign was there and I knew how close I was to the bed. So I actually stood there for, I would say, the better part of 20 minutes trying to decide the specific tree I wanted to be in. and that was based on my thermals at that point for more than anything else. And I actually noticed that the wind was as the velocity of the wind would change, it would swirl my wind a little bit and I didn't want him to be able to smell me. So I decided to continue to move on a little bit further, which was ended up being 33 yards total. And the reason for that was there was another cut in the mountainside and I got right on the point of that cut and my thermals pulled down a little bit more. And I decided that that's where I wanted to be set up. So I, I mean, it took me a long time to get my tree stand set up. I tried to go up in one trip. It didn't work. I had to go up in two trips. I, I finally got up and got set up and I was just, I had a doe come off the ridge real early with a fawn. I was filming that and then I was just filming B-roll. You know, it was a beautiful day out. It was blue skies and 
gorgeous. And so I had my camera in manual and that's when I heard a stick crack. I looked up and I saw this deer stand up and I knew it was a buck right away, but I didn't know obviously how big of a deer it was. And like I said, he started working kind of away from me, like towards the food source a little more. And I couldn't figure out why he missed that white oak. Cause I was like, he should have got up and came to that white oak. The reason for that is he wanted to be downwind of it first. So he left his bed. He went downwind of that white oak and came right back. And he was so focused on, on smelling that white oak that he never put his nose on the ground, smelled my ground scent at all. Whether he would have, whether that would have ruined the hunt or not, I don't know. I've, I've never been a big believer of ground scent too much anyways, but, um, he continued to work into that white Oak and he turned broadside. I swung my camera around as good as I could in manual. So I had it all messed up <laughs> drew back. He actually, when I drew back, my string got caught on my camera. So I had to get my string off my camera and he looked right at me and I aimed and squeezed and, uh, I hit him a little bit high and a little back, but I hit that big artery right at the, right at the bottom of the spine. And within, yeah, uh, yeah, they, they, basically the aorta. And within five yards, I mean, his whole side was blood and it, he jumped across the creek and I, it sounded like a washing machine on the other side, kind of. I remember that. And then I heard like a step, step, step crash and I knew he fell right there. And at the time I was thinking he was 160 inch deer. You know, he looked like a 160 inch frame coming in and obviously got down, checked my arrow. I had really good lung blood. I went back up. I sat there for a while. I kind of did like a post interview that was still out of focus because I was so <laughs> ramped up. <laughs> um, and uh, I didn't film any of like the tracking or anything because I was, I, I can't even explain to you how fired up I was over this deer. I mean, I was just <laughs> completely peeking. And I walked up on him and I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe that the size of this thing and all the points all over the place and stuff. It was, it's crazy, man. I mean, I sat up there. I lost my grandpa the year before, and I dedicated the previous hunting season to him. I didn't fill a tag because um, I was really focused on on getting my exit deer that year. So I didn't fill my tag, and I, I really wanted to dedicate moving to Ohio to him. And, I mean, I just sat up there and I actually kind of, you know, just took everything in for a while and went out. I didn't have any service, so I had to drive almost a half hour to get service to call my buddy and my dad. And Ethan drove from Wheeling to actually – he he met me before I was finished dragging that deer out because it was such hard drag. And my brother and dad came down and we all celebrated. It was awesome. I just can't even, can't even explain it. That's awesome, dude. My favorite part of that video is there's this like overwhelming excitement that you have going yet. you You like, there's this urgency of I've got to get out and get help to get this deer out of here because you obviously don't want it to go bad, but you're trying to enjoy the moment. You're trying to do that thing, the, the thing that we all enjoy, which is to savor it. But you had to boogie out of there pretty quick, man. But you could just, you could see the excitement just all over your face. It was awesome. Oh, that was, yeah, I just, I get, I get so ramped up over deer. I can't even, <laughs> it's crazy, man. <laughs> oh, I man. Love it. That's too cool, dude. I, well, what are you going to do to uh, push past the, what you managed to accomplish last year in only a couple couple months, dude? So I've got I've got some the beat on on quite a few good ones this year. Um, I'm after a specific buck that I I've got a bunch of them that I can target. I have backup plans, but day one, if I have the right wind, I've got a deer locked down pretty good. He's he's going to be right at that 170 mark as an 11. 
his 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 G four on the left side is only like probably an inch long. It might not even be a point, so he might be a typical ten still, but he's just an absolute giant. I mean, I've got him, I've got him on a community scrape coming off of a betting ridge, and he has been there at least three times a week since June in daylight. Wow! And that's on public, and he's also in there with uh, at least one other one sixty and a couple 150s, and then a bunch of just three-year-old bucks. I mean, that whole system in there is loaded with deer right now. Mm-hmm. So I've got – that's that's kind of my game plan right now. I'm just trying to get my gear ready at this point. I'm trying to make sure I've got everything as quiet as possible. Um, I actually have to go pick some milkweed because I ran out of milkweed. So I'm going to pick that and let it dry up for a couple weeks and should be ready to go, man. It should be uh, should be an awesome season. If I, if I tag out here, I'm going to start doing some traveling around and – try to hit some new spots and at least get a little bit of rut hunting in. Cause I don't have a lot of rut experience. So, um, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled, man. I'm, I'm there's ready not, for the season. There's not a whole lot of big buck killers that can say that. <laughs> yeah. I just very rarely have a tag, honestly. Yeah. And that's why the whole traveling things appealing to me a little bit more. I, sure. I'd like to hunt more than a week, a year. It, it help out quite a bit. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> man. Well, dude, I, I appreciate the heck had you taken time out your evening to talk to us and i i I have a feeling we're gonna have to have you back on because i'm gonna i'm gonna be knuckleheaded and try and apply everything that you've said and i'm probably gonna have to hit you up with like a hundred new questions Uh, oh absolutely man yeah i'm all for it (laughs) why don't you tell everybody where they can find uh, everything jake bush solo yes sir so uh instagram's gonna be jake underscore bush underscore solo i post a lot of hunting stuff on there for the most part um I've got a YouTube, which is Legends of the Hunt as well, and that's that's pretty much my two biggest platforms. Right on, man. Right on. I'm going to close this out. Hang out with us for just a second longer. Yes, sir. Sounds good. All right, guys. Do me a do. <clears throat> okay, guys. Do me a favor. Go show him some love. Follow him. Subscribe to him. Get the little bell notification going so that every time he drops a booner this year, you are the first person to know. But most importantly, no matter what you do, get outside and enjoy the great outdoors.